Hello, it's Sam, and this time I'm coming to you from icy Raleigh, North Carolina. Relatively Prime could not have happened if 340 people had not become my personal heroes and backed it on Kickstarter. In particular for this episode, I would like to thank Eric Feinrich, Bree, Alistair, Kevin Benton, and John Gamble, as well as my Kickstarter producers, Daniel Murphy and Edmund Harris. If you also want to be a personal hero of mine, then please rate and review the show on iTunes. Each one makes my heart grow an extra size, and my New Year's resolution was to be as un-Grinch-like as possible, so please help me achieve my goal. You could also just take a friend's phone and subscribe them to the show if you're so inclined. I'm sure they will thank you when they start speaking to you again. And before we start the show, let me tell you some more about Exitex posters. Last week, I introduced them to you by saying that you could get a poster that looked like Pi, except the image is actually comprised of the initial nearly 6 million digits of the constant. This time, I want you to think about how small that must make the digits. No? Smaller. Nope. Even smaller than that. Uh, still just a bit smaller, to be honest. Reading the posters is the most fun that you can have with a jeweler's loop in your eye. Find out more at exatexposters.com. That's E-X-A-T-E-X-T posters.com. And now, Relatively Prime, Diegetic Plots, Chapter 1. Now I will read to you uh, my very first mathematical poem, actually. This is titled, The Colors of Math. White in the beginning, color of the empty page. Foreign symbols scribbled, frantic, illegible. Ants scurrying about on snow. Blue blaring screen, a blinking cursor, a mild early spring breeze, inspiration, and a cold, sniffling red nose, blood on your manuscript, red like anger, red like hate. Would you like some carrot cake? Damn coffee! Burn your fingers, stain your notepad. It has to get muddy and brown before it blooms. This is Relatively Prime, poetry and prose from the mathematical domain. I am Samuel Hansen. You just heard Gazem Karali from Pomona College reading her poem, The Colors of Math. Gazem is an editor of the Journal of Humanistic Mathematics a journal which looks at mathematics as a human endeavor, with an emphasis on the aesthetic, cultural, and sociological aspects of our beloved subject. It's a great journal, which I really do think that you should check out. After you listen to this episode, of course. Speaking of that, speaking of this episode, we're also going to be delving into the humanistic side of mathematics. It's the first chapter in a recurring series I'm calling Diegetic Plots. Yes? That is a super nerdy joke, and yes, I am super proud of it. 
I will warn you that the content in this episode is going to be a departure from the norm. Not that it won't be mathematical, it certainly will be that, but instead of talking about someone's research or career in mathematics, this time around, I'm going to draw on my undergraduate minor in the humanities and bring to you poetry and prose from the mathematical domain. Which, come to think of it, really isn't all that different from Relatively Prime's tagline. Stories from the mathematical domain. Since we've already heard our first poem, it's only fair that we now head into the world of mathematical prose. And while I doubt any libraries are going to be adding dedicated math fiction shelves to their stacks anytime soon, there have been excellent examples of the genre written by authors like Rudy Rucker and Neil Stevenson. But it's the author of a short story titled Division by Zero that I want to start with today. My name is Ted Chang, D-C-H-I, and I'm a science fiction writer. Division by Zero is in Ted Chang's amazing short story collection, Stories of Your Life and Others. And if you like good science fiction, hell, if you just like good writing, you'd be doing yourself a huge favor by going and picking up a copy right now. Why wouldn't you? There's a math fiction story in it. Speaking of, I really wondered where the idea for Division by Zero came from. Mathematics isn't Ted's typical area of focus, and when I asked him, he said that he just writes about things that interest him. And as we all know, some mathematics is just too interesting to ignore. Yeah, I write about the topics that interest me, and I was fascinated by Gödel's incompleteness theorem. Probably first encountered it in uh, Douglas Hofstadter's book, Gödel Escher Bach. And that just, that just struck me as fascinating, the idea that, that mathematics had these built-in limitations. One of the things he found most fascinating was how mathematicians reacted to the incompleteness theorem. And more specifically, what that reaction said about how mathematicians view mathematics. I mean, if people hadn't thought of mathematics as being an access to the, you know, sort of a, a deep fundamental truths about the universe, Gödel's discovery would not have had the impact it did. Now, I don't want to spoil the story for you, but I can tell you that in Division by Zero, it turns out mathematics has an even more fundamental flaw. But instead of focusing on how that flaw impacts mathematics as a whole, the story centers around the very personal reaction of the main character, Renee. And it's by focusing in on the single character's experience that really allows Ted to harness science fiction's power. Well, I think that one of the strengths of science fiction is that it lets you use science, or in this case, mathematics, as a metaphor to illuminate human experience. And the human experiences that mathematics help illuminate in Division by Zero? They're about as human as you can get. I also asked Ted if he approached writing about mathematics any differently than he does writing about science. For you, writing this story with mathematics as, as your sort of uh, foundational bit of it, uh, was it any different than when you're writing one based in one of the different sciences? Was there you know, a kind of different way you had to go about thinking it, or was it pretty similar to uh, how you end up approaching most of your story writing? It's a, it's a 
maybe a little different in that a lot of the mathematics that is sort of referenced in the story is is very sort of abstruse and theoretical. And uh, I freely admit, you know, I I cannot follow Gödel's proof in the original form. Sorry, I need to interject here for a second. Ted shouldn't feel bad about this because I can't either. Okay, that was it. We can get back to it now. I can only follow it in sort of a, a popularized form. So I was conscious of there being, you know, a little more distance between me and the, you know, the actual science than maybe in uh, the case of some other uh, areas where I felt like I can get a little closer to the actual science. Before we can get to our reading of Division by Zero, I tried, oh yeah, that's right. Uh, I've been holding out on y'all. We have a reading of Division by Zero in its entirety, and it is so good. You're going to love it so much. I can't wait for you to hear it. But before we can get to it, I tried to get Ted to command all mathematicians to write fiction. That's how much I want more math fiction. I tried to get him to command people to do it. But while I couldn't get him to put that command on record, Ted did put in a good word for science fiction to mathematicians and scientists. You know, there are a lot of people for whom science fiction is basically, it's equivalent to nonsense. And I think that is probably because their exposure to science fiction might be limited to things like, you know, the Star Wars movies. And, you know, uh, I think that there are, there's a lot of interesting science fiction which can convey important elements of the scientific worldview and science as an enterprise and can engage in interesting thought experiments. So I would hope that people in the, in the sciences not uh, immediately dismiss science fiction and maybe, you know, they could find some work which, which actually has some, some real merit to it and is, is more than, more than like a, a Hollywood vehicle for special effects. To find such work, you really don't need to look any further than our guest Ted Chang's short story collection, Stories of Your Life and Others. And now, from that collection, Division by Zero, as read by Jess Charlton, Kitty Staholsky, and myself. One. Dividing a number by zero doesn't produce an infinitely large number as an answer. The reason is that division is defined as the inverse of multiplication. If you divide by zero and then multiply by zero, you should regain the number you started with. However, multiplying infinity by zero produces only zero, not any other number. There is nothing which can be multiplied by zero to produce a non-zero result. Therefore, the result of a division by zero is literally undefined. 1a. Renee was looking out the window when Mrs. Rivas approached. Leaving after only a week? Hardly a real stay at all. Lord knows I won't be leaving for a long time. Renee forced a polite smile. I'm sure it won't be long for you. Mrs. Rivas was the manipulator in the ward. Everyone knew that her attempts were merely gestures, 
but the aides wearily paid attention to her, lest she succeed accidentally. Ha! They wish I'd leave. You know what kind of liability they face if you die while you're on status? Yes, I know. That's all they're worried about, you can tell. Always their liability. Renee tuned out and returned her attention to the window, watching a contrail extrude itself across the sky. Mrs. Norwood? A nurse called. Your husband's here. Renee gave Mrs. Rivas another polite smile and left. 1B Carl signed his name yet another time, and finally the nurses took away the forms for processing. He remembered when he had brought Renee in to be admitted, and thought of all the stock questions at the first interview. He had answered them all stoically. Yes, she's a professor of mathematics. You can find her in who's who. No, I'm in biology. And I had left behind a box of slides that I needed. No, she couldn't have known. And just as expected, yes, I have. It was about 20 years ago when I was a grad student. No, I tried jumping. No, Renee and I didn't know each other then, and on and on. Now they were convinced that he was competent and supportive, and were ready to release Renee into an outpatient treatment program. Looking back, Carl was surprised in an abstracted way. Except for one moment, there hadn't been any sense of deja vu at any time during the entire ordeal. All the time he was dealing with the hospital, the doctors, the nurses, the only accompanying sensation was one of numbness, of sheer tedious rote. 2. There's a well-known proof that demonstrates that 1 equals 2. It begins with some definitions. Let A equal 1. Let B equal 1. It ends with the conclusion A equals 2A. That is, 1 equals 2. Hidden inconspicuously in the middle is a division by 0. And at that point, the proof has stepped off the brink making all rules null and void. Permitting division by zero allows one to prove not only that one and two are equal, but that any two numbers at all, real or imaginary, rational or irrational, are equal. 2A. As soon as she and Carl got home, Renee went to the desk in her study and began turning all the papers face down, blindly sweeping them together into a pile. She winced whenever a corner of a page turned up during her shuffling. She considered burning the pages, but that would be merely symbolic now. She'd accomplish as much by simply never glancing at them. The doctors would probably describe it as obsessive behavior. Renee frowned, reminded of the indignity of being a patient under such fools. She remembered being on suicide status, in a locked ward under the supposedly round-the-clock observation of the aides, and the interviews with the doctors who were so condescending, so obvious. She was no manipulator like Mrs. Rivas, but it really was easy. Simply say, I realize I'm not well yet, but I do feel better, and you'd be considered almost ready for release. To be. Carl watched Renee from the doorway for a moment before he passed down the hallway. He remembered the day, fully two decades past, when he himself had been released. His parents had picked him up, and on the trip back, his mother had made some inane comment about how glad everyone would be to see him, and he was just barely able to restrain himself from shaking her arm off his shoulders. He had done for Renee what he would have appreciated during his period under observation. He had come to visit every day, even though she refused to see him at first, so that he wouldn't be absent when she did want to see him. Sometimes they talked, and sometimes they simply walked around the grounds. He could find nothing wrong in what he did, 
and he knew that she appreciated it. Yet, despite all his efforts, he felt no more than a sense of duty towards her. 3. In Principia Mathematica, Bertrand Russell and Alfred Whitehead attempted to give a rigorous foundation to mathematics using formal logic as their basis. They began with what they considered to be axioms, and used those to derive theorems of increasing complexity. By page 362, they had established enough to prove that 1 plus 1 equals 2. 3a. As a child of seven while investigating the house of a relative, Renee had been spellbound at discovering the perfect squares in the smooth marble tiles of the floor. A single one, two rows of two, three rows of three, four rows of four. The tiles fit together in a square, of course. No matter which side you looked at it from, it came out the same. And more than that, each square was bigger than the last one by an odd number of tiles. It was an epiphany. The conclusion was necessary. It had a rightness to it confirmed by the smooth, cool feel of the tiles, and the way the tiles were fitted together with such incredibly fine lines where they met, she had shivered at the precision. Later on, there came other realizations, other achievements. The astonishing doctoral dissertation at 23, the series of acclaimed papers. People compared her to von Neumann. Universities wooed her. She had never paid any of it much attention. What she did pay attention to was the same sense of rightness, possessed by every theorem she learned, as insistent as the tile's physicality and as exact as their fit. 3b. Carl felt that the person he was today was born after his attempt when he met Lara. After being released from the hospital, he was in no mood to see anyone, but a friend of his had managed to introduce him to Lara. He had pushed her away initially, but she had known better. She had loved him while he was hurting and let him go once he was healed. Through knowing her, Carl had learned about empathy, and he was remade. Lara had moved on after getting her own master's degree, while he stayed at the university for his doctorate in biology. He suffered various crises and heartbreaks later on in life, but never again despair. Carl marveled when he thought about what kind of person she was. He hadn't spoken to her since grad school. What had her life been like over the years? He wondered whom else she had loved. Early on, he had recognized what kind of love it was, and what kind it wasn't, and he valued it immensely. 4. In the early 19th century, mathematicians began exploring geometries that differed from Euclidean geometry. These alternate geometries produced results that seemed utterly absurd, but they didn't produce logical contradictions. It was later shown that these non-Euclidean geometries were consistent relative to Euclidean geometry. They were logically consistent as long as one assumed that Euclidean geometry was consistent. The proof of Euclidean geometry's consistency eluded mathematicians. By the end of the 19th century, the best that was achieved was a proof that Euclidean geometry was consistent as long as arithmetic was consistent. 4a. At the time when it all began, Renee had thought it little more than an annoyance. She had walked down the hall and knocked on the open door of Peter Fabrizi's office. Pete, got a minute? Fabrizi pushed his chair back from the desk. Sure, Renee, what's up? Renee came in, knowing what his reaction would be. She had never asked anyone in the department for advice on a problem before. It had always been the reverse. No matter. 
I was wondering if you could do me a favor. You remember what I was telling you about a couple weeks back about the formalism I was developing? He nodded. The one you were rewriting Axiom Systems with. Right. Well, a few days ago, I started coming up with really ridiculous conclusions, and now my formalism is contradicting itself. Can you take a look at it? Fabrizi's expression was as expected. You want? Sure. I'd be glad to. Great. The examples on the first few pages are where the problem is. The rest is just for your reference. She handed Fabrizi a thin sheaf of papers. I thought if I talked you through it, you'd just see the same things as I do. You're probably right. Fabrizi looked at the first couple pages. I don't know how long this is going to take. No hurry. When you get a chance, just uh, see whether any of my assumptions seem a little dubious. Anything like that. I'll still be going at it, so I'll tell you if I come up with anything, okay? Fabrizi smiled. You're just going to come in this afternoon and tell me you've found the problem. I doubt it. This calls for a fresh eye. He spread his hands. I'll give it a shot. Thanks. It was unlikely that Fabrizi would fully grasp her formalism, but all she needed was someone who could check its more mechanical aspects. 4B Carl had met Renee at a party given by a colleague of his. He had been taken with her face. Hers was a remarkably plain face, and it appeared quite somber most of the time. But during the party, he saw her smile twice and frown once. At those moments, her entire countenance assumed the expression as if it had never known another. Carl had been caught by surprise. He could recognize a face that smiled regularly, or a face that frowned regularly, even if it were unlined. He was curious as to how her face had developed such a close familiarity with so many expressions, and yet normally revealed nothing. It took a long time for him to understand Renee, to read her expressions, but it had definitely been worthwhile. Now Carl sat in his easy chair in his study, a copy of the latest issue of Marine Biology in his lap, and listened to the sound of Renee crumpling paper in her study across the hall. She'd been working all evening, with audibly increasing frustration, though she'd been wearing her customary poker face when last he'd looked in. He put the journal aside, got up from the chair, and walked over to the entrance of her study. She had a volume opened on her desk. The pages were filled with the usual hieroglyphic equations, interspersed with commentary in Russian. She scanned some of the material, dismissed it with a barely perceptible frown, and slammed the volume closed. Carl heard her mutter the word, useless, and she returned the tome to the bookcase. You're going to give yourself high blood pressure if you keep up like this, Carl jested. Don't patronize me. Carl was startled. I wasn't. Renee turned to look at him and glared. I know when I'm capable of working productively and when I'm not. Chilled. Then I won't bother you, he retreated. Thank you. She returned her attention to the bookshelves. Carl left, trying to decipher that glare. 5. At the Second International Congress of Mathematics in 1900, David Hilbert listed what he considered to be the 23 most important unsolved problems of mathematics. The second item on his list was a request for a proof of the consistency of arithmetic. Such a proof would ensure the consistency of a great deal of higher mathematics. What this proof had to guarantee was, in essence, that one could never prove 1 equals 2. Few mathematicians regarded this as a matter of much import. 5a 
Renee had known what Fabrizi would say before he opened his mouth. That was the damnedest thing I've ever seen. You know that toy for toddlers where you fit blocks with different cross-sections into the differently shaped slots? Reading your formal system is like watching someone take one block and sliding it into every single hole on the board and making it a perfect fit every time. So you can't find the error? He shook his head. Not me. I've slipped into the same rut as you. I can only think about it one way. Renee was no longer in a rut. She had come up with a totally different approach to the question, but it only confirmed the original contradiction. Well, thanks for trying. You going to have someone else look at it? Yes, I think I'll send it to Callahan over at Berkeley. We've been corresponding since the conference last spring. Fabrizi nodded. I was really impressed by his last paper. Let me know if you can find it. I'm curious. Renee would have used a stronger word than curious for herself. 5B. Was Renee just frustrated with her work? Carl knew that she had never considered mathematics really difficult, just intellectually challenging. Could it be that for the first time she was running into problems that she could make no headway against? Or did mathematics work that way at all? Carl himself was strictly an experimentalist. He really didn't know how Renee made new math. It sounded silly, but perhaps she was running out of ideas? Renee was too old to be suffering from the disillusionment of a child prodigy becoming an average adult. On the other hand, many mathematicians did their best work before the age of 30, and she might be growing anxious over whether that statistic was catching up to her, albeit several years behind schedule. It seemed unlikely. He gave a few other possibilities cursory consideration. Could she be growing cynical about academia? Dismayed that her research had become over-specialized? Or simply weary of her work? Carl didn't believe that such anxieties were the cause of Renee's behavior. He could imagine the impressions that he would pick up if that were the case, and they didn't mesh with what he was receiving. Whatever was bothering Renee, it was something he couldn't fathom, and that disturbed him. 6. In 1931, Kurt Gödel demonstrated two theorems. The first one shows, in effect, that mathematics contains statements that may be true but are inherently unprovable. Even a formal system as simple as arithmetic permits statements that are precise, meaningful, and seem certainly true, and yet cannot be proven true by formal means. His second theorem shows that a claim of the consistency of arithmetic is just such a statement. It cannot be proven true by any means using the axioms of arithmetic. That is, arithmetic as a formal system cannot guarantee that it will not produce results such as 1 equals 2. Such contradictions may never have been encountered, but it's impossible to prove that they never will be. 6a Once again he had come into her study. Renee looked up from her desk at Carl. He began resolutely. Renee, it's obvious that she cut him off. You want to know what's bothering me? Okay. I'll tell you. Renee got out a blank sheet of paper and sat down at her desk. Hang on, this'll take a minute. Carl opened his mouth again, but Renee waved in silent. She took a deep breath and began writing. She drew a line down the center of the page, dividing it into two columns. At the head of one column, she wrote the numeral one, and for the other, she wrote two. Below them, she rapidly scrawled out some symbols, and in the lines below those, she expanded them into strings of other symbols. She gritted her teeth as she wrote. 
Forming the characters felt like dragging her fingernails across a chalkboard. About two-thirds of the way down the page, Renee began reducing the long strings of symbols into successively shorter strings. And now for the masterstroke, she thought. She realized she was pressing hard on the paper. She consciously relaxed her grip on the pencil. On the next line that she put down, the strings became identical. She wrote an emphatic equal sign across the center at the bottom of the page. She handed the sheet to Carl. He looked at her, indicating incomprehension. Look at the top. He did so. Now look at the bottom. He frowned. I don't understand. I've discovered a formalism that lets you equate any number with any other number. That page there proves that one and two are equal. Pick any two numbers you like. I can prove those equal as well. Carl seemed to be trying to remember something. It's a division by zero, right? Nope. There are no illegal operations, no poorly defined terms, no independent axioms that are implicitly assumed. Nothing. The proof employs absolutely nothing that's forbidden. Carl shook his head. Wait a minute. Obviously, one and two aren't the same. But formally, they are. The proof's in your hand. Everything I've used is within what's accepted as absolutely undisputable. But you've got a contradiction here. That's right. Arithmetic as a formal system is inconsistent. 6b. You can't find your mistake. Is that what you mean? No, you're not listening. You think I'm just frustrated because of something like that? There is no mistake in this proof. You're saying there's something wrong within what's accepted? Exactly. Are you? He stopped, but too late. She glared at him. Of course she was sure. He thought about what she was implying. Do you see? Asked Renee. I've just disproved most of mathematics. It's all meaningless now. She was getting agitated, almost distraught. Carl chose his words carefully. How can you say that? Math still works. The scientific and economic worlds aren't suddenly going to collapse from this realization. That's because the mathematics they're using is just a gimmick. It's a mnemonic trick, like counting on your knuckles to figure out which months have 31 days. That's not the same. Why isn't it? Now mathematics have absolutely nothing to do with reality. Never mind concepts like imaginaries or infinitesimals. Now goddamn integer addition has nothing to do with counting on your fingers. One and one will always get you two on your fingers, but on paper I can give you an infinite number of answers, and they're all equally valid. Which means they're all equally invalid. I can write the most elegant theorem you've ever seen, and it won't mean any more than a nonsense equation. She gave a bitter laugh. The positivists used to say all mathematics is a tautology. They had it all wrong. It's a contradiction. Carl tried a different approach. Hold on. You just mentioned imaginary numbers. Why is this any worse than what went on with those? Mathematicians once believed they were meaningless, but now they're accepted as basic. This is the same situation. It's not the same. The solution there was to simply expand the context, and that won't do any good here. Imaginary numbers added something new to mathematics, but my formalism is redefining what's already there. But if you change the context, put it in a different light, she rolled her eyes, no, this follows from the axioms as surely as addition does. There's no way around it. You can take my word for it. 7. In 1936, Gerhard Gensen provided a proof of the consistency of arithmetic. But to do it, he needed to use a controversial technique known as transfinite induction. 
This technique is not among the usual methods of proof, and it hardly seemed appropriate for guaranteeing the consistency of arithmetic. What Genson had done was prove the obvious by assuming the doubtful. 7a. Callahan had called from Berkeley, but could offer no rescue. He said he would continue to examine her work, but it seemed that she had hit upon something fundamental and disturbing. He wanted to know about her plans for publication for her formalism, because if it did contain an error that neither of them could find, others in the mathematics community surely would be able to. Renee had barely been able to hear him speaking and mumbled that she would get back to him. Lately, she'd been having difficulty talking to people, especially since the argument with Carl. The other members of her department had taken to avoiding her. Her concentration was gone. And last night, she had had a nightmare about discovering a formalism that let her translate arbitrary concepts into mathematical expressions. Then she had proven that life and death were equivalent. That was something that frightened her, the possibility that she was losing her mind. She was certainly losing her clarity of thought, and that came pretty close. What a ridiculous woman you are, she chided herself. Was Girdle suicidal after he demonstrated his incompleteness theorem? But that was beautiful, numinous, one of the most elegant theorems Renee had ever seen. Her own proof taunted her, ridiculed her. Like a brain teaser in a puzzle book, it said, gotcha. You skipped right over the mistake. See if you can find where you screwed up, only to turn around and say gotcha again. She imagined Callahan would be pondering the implications that her discovery held for mathematics. So much of mathematics had no practical application. It existed solely as a formal theory, studied for its intellectual beauty. But that couldn't last. A self-contradictory theory was so pointless that most mathematicians would drop it in disgust. What truly infuriated Renée was the way her own intuition had betrayed her. The damn theorem made sense. In its own perverted way, it felt right. She understood it. Knew why it was true. Believed it. 7b Carl smiled when he thought of her birthday. I can't believe you! How could you possibly have known? She had run down the stairs holding a sweater in her hands. Last summer they had been in Scotland on vacation, and in one store in Edinburgh there had been a sweater that Renée had been eyeing but didn't buy. He had ordered it and placed it in her dresser drawer for her to find that morning. You're just so transparent, he had teased her. They both knew that wasn't true, but he liked to tell her that. That was two months ago. A scant two months. Now the situation called for a change of pace. Carl went into her study and found Renée sitting in her chair, staring out the window. Guess what I got for us? She looked up. What? Reservations for the weekend. A suite at the Biltmore. We can relax and do absolutely nothing. Please stop, Renée said. I know what you're trying to do, Carl. You want us to do something pleasant and distracting to take my mind off this formalism. But it won't work. You don't know what kind of hold this has on me. Come on, come on. He tugged at her hands to get her off the chair, but she pulled away. Carl stood there for a moment when suddenly she turned and locked eyes with him. You know I've been tempted to take barbiturates. I almost wish I were an idiot so I wouldn't have to think about it. He was taken aback. Uncertain of his bearings, he said, Why won't you at least try to get away for a while? It couldn't hurt, and maybe it'll take your mind off this. It's not anything I can take my mind off of. You just don't understand. So explain it to me. Renee exhaled and turned away to think for a moment. It's like everything I see is shouting the contradiction at me, she said. 
I'm equating numbers all the time now. Carl was silent. Then, with sudden comprehension, he said, Like the classical physicists facing quantum mechanics, as if a theory you've always believed has been superseded, and the new one makes no sense. But somehow all the evidence supports it. No, it's not like that at all. Her dismissal was almost contemptuous. This has nothing to do with evidence. It's all a priori. How is that different? Isn't it just evidence of your reasoning, then? Christ, are you joking? It's the difference between my measuring one and two to have the same value and my intuiting it. I can't maintain the concept of distinct quantities in my mind anymore. They all feel the same to me. You don't mean that, he said. No one could actually experience such a thing. It's like believing six impossible things before breakfast. How would you know what I can experience? I'm trying to understand. Don't bother. Carl's patience was gone. All right, then. He walked out of the room and canceled the reservations. They scarcely spoke after that, talking only when necessary. It was three days later that Carl forgot the box of slides he needed and drove back to the house and found her note on the table. Carl intuited two things in the moments following. The first came to him as he was racing through the house, wondering if she had gotten some cyanide from the chemistry department. It was the realization that, because he couldn't understand what had brought her to such an action, he couldn't feel anything for her. The second intuition came to him as he was pounding on the bedroom door, yelling at her inside. He experienced deja vu. It was the only time the situation would feel familiar, and yet it was grotesquely reversed. He remembered being on the other side of a locked door, on the roof of a building, hearing a friend pounding on the door and yelling for him not to do it. And as he stood there outside the bedroom door, he could hear her sobbing, on the floor paralyzed with shame, exactly the same as he had been when it was him on the other side. 8. Hilbert once said, If mathematical thinking is defective, where are we to find truth and certitude? 8a. Would her suicide attempt brand her for the rest of her life, Renee wondered. She aligned the corners of the papers on her desk. Would people henceforth regard her, perhaps unconsciously, as flighty or unstable? She had never asked Carl if he had ever felt such anxieties, perhaps because she never held his attempt against him. It happened many years ago, and anyone seeing him now would immediately recognize him as a whole person. But Renee could not say the same for herself. Right now, she was unable to discuss mathematics intelligibly, and she was unsure whether she ever could again. Were her colleagues to see her now, they would simply say she's lost the knack. Finished at her desk, Renee left her study and walked into the living room. After her formalism circulated through the academic community, it would require an overhaul of established mathematical foundations, but it would affect only a few as it had her. Most would be like Fabrizi. They would follow the proof mechanically and be convinced by it, but no more. The only persons who would feel it nearly as keenly as she had were those who could actually grasp the contradiction, who could intuit it. Callahan was one of those. She wondered how he was handling it as the days wore on. Renee traced a curly pattern in the dust on an end table. Before she might have idly parametized the curve, examined some of its characteristics, now there seemed no point. All of her visualizations simply collapsed. She, like many, had always thought that mathematics did not derive its meaning from the universe, but rather imposed some meaning onto the universe. Physical entities were no greater or less than one another, not similar or dissimilar. They simply were. They existed. 
Mathematics was totally independent, but it virtually provided a semantic meaning for those entities, supplying categories and relationships. It didn't describe any intrinsic quality, merely a possible interpretation. But no more. Mathematics was inconsistent once it was removed from physical entities, and a formal theory was nothing if not consistent. Math was empirical, no more than that, and it held no interest for her. What would she turn to now? Renee had known someone who gave up academia to sell handmade leather goods. She would have to take some time, regain her bearings, and that was just what Carl had been trying to help her do throughout it all. Eight B. Among Carl's friends were a pair of women who were each other's best friend, Marlene and Anne. Years ago, when Marlene had considered suicide, she hadn't turned to Anne for support. She had turned to Carl. He and Marlene had sat up all night on a few occasions, talking or sharing silence. Carl knew that Anne had always harbored a bit of envy for what he had shared with Marlene, that she had always wondered what advantage he held that allowed him to get so close to her. The answer was simple. It was the difference between sympathy and empathy. Carl had offered comfort in similar situations more than once in his lifetime. He had been glad he could help, certainly, but more than that, it had felt right to sit in the other seat and play the other part. He had always had reason to consider compassion a basic part of his character, until now. He had valued that, felt that he was nothing if not empathetic, but now he'd run up against something he'd never encountered before and it rendered all his usual instincts null and void. If someone had told him on Renee's birthday that he would feel this way in two months' time, he would have dismissed the idea instantly. Certainly, such a thing could happen over years. Carl knew what time could do. But two months? After six years of marriage, he had fallen out of love with her. Carl detested himself for the thought, but the fact was that she had changed. And now he neither understood her nor knew how to feel for her. Renee's intellectual and emotional lives were inextricably linked, so that the latter had moved beyond his reach. His reflex reaction of forgiveness cut in, reasoning that you couldn't ask a person to remain supportive through any crisis. If a man's wife were suddenly afflicted with mental illness, it would be a sin for him to leave her, but a forgivable one. To stay would mean accepting a different kind of relationship, something which not everyone was cut out for, and Carl never condemned a person in such a situation. But there was always the unspoken question, what would I do? And his answer had always been, I would stay. Hypocrite. Worst of all, he had been there. He had been absorbed in his own pain. He had tried the endurance of others. And someone had nursed him through it all. His leaving Renee was inevitable. But it would be a sin he couldn't forgive. 9. Albert Einstein once said, Insofar as the propositions of mathematics give an account of reality, they are not certain. And insofar as they are certain, they do not describe reality. 9a equals 9b. Carl was in the kitchen, stringing snow pea pods for dinner, when Renee came in. Can I talk to you for a minute? Sure. They sat down at the table. She looked studiedly out the window, her habit when beginning a serious conversation. He suddenly dreaded what she was about to say. He hadn't planned to tell her that he was leaving until she'd fully recovered, after a couple of months. Now was too soon. I know it hasn't been obvious. No, he prayed. Don't say it. Please don't. But I'm grateful to have you here with me. Pierced, Carl closed his eyes. 
but thankfully Renee was still looking out the window. It was going to be so, so difficult. She was still talking. The things that have been going on in my head. She paused. It was like nothing I'd ever imagined. If it had been any normal kind of depression, I know you would have understood and we could have handled it. Carl nodded. But what happened, it was almost as if I were a theologian proving that there was no God. Not just fearing it, but knowing it for a fact. Does that sound absurd? No. It's a feeling I can't convey to you. It was something that I believed deeply, implicitly. And it's not true. And I'm the one who demonstrated it. He opened his mouth to say that he knew exactly what she meant. That he had felt the same things as she. But he stopped himself. For this was an empathy that separated rather than united them. And he couldn't tell her that. Once again, that was Division by Zero from Ted Chang's short story collection, Stories of Your Life and Others, as read by Jess Charlton, Kitty Staholsky, and myself. Now, before we head on to the next story, I want to put in a little postscript here about the numbering you just heard. The numbering is, it's meant to, to mirror a, a proof that's referenced uh, at one point in the story, because there is this, this common proof to show that one equals two, because hidden in the proof is a, a division by zero, which is not immediately obvious. But, you know, that proof seems to show that, you know, two disparate things are actually equivalent. So I was trying to sort of mimic that in a subtle fashion with the numbering of the story sections. Now it's time to move on to what? What's that? Oh my, ah! That, what, is that a black hole? Is that, is that black, really? Uh, huh? Oh, that, oh, it's gone. Huh. Well, that, that was the weirdest thing, listeners. A, uh, a black hole apparently just opened above my desk and dropped this letter. Seems... Oh, 2025. They dropped a letter from the future. Uh, oh, ooh, I'm going to have to read this to you. Uh, this, this appears to be a letter to a mathematician from some lawyers. Oh, yeah, you, you need to hear this. From the offices of Lee Stickham. Elizabeth Tuya and Tyler Howe, Esquires. Dear Professor Jennifer Strickland, It's come to our attention that you've submitted a paper to the Journal of Amazing Mathematics entitled A Simple and Concise Proof of Goldbach's June 30th, 1742 Conjecture, which we are going to kindly ask that you withdraw due to copious infringement of the patents held by our client, Consolidated Venture Solutions Incorporated, herein referred to as CVSI. As we are sure that you are aware, 
the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit on August 16, 2011, decided the case CyberSource Corp. v. Retail Decisions Incorporated, which set the precedent that if mathematics is sufficiently hard, then it's patentable. After which, and pursuant to, our client CVSI acquired the patents to many theorems, corollaries, and lemmas, of which you find yourself in violation of no less than five. The processes through which these infringements are determined are as simple as they are effective. First, your paper was converted to a machine-readable format. Then it was fed into an automated proof checker. This proof checker then analyzes all of your steps for validity and determines which prior results are needed to justify the previous step. And finally, these results are checked against our database of patents. This is the same process that the federal government uses when verifying the foundations of governmentally funded work. The five major violations, and there were many, many, many minor violations that we are simply not going to pursue at this point, were 1. Line 34, page 6. It clearly follows that, in fact, it is not clear. It actually uses the result, if the primes between n and n plus 1 are sufficiently spectral, then as proven by J.L. Disher and I.K. Remington, in their paper, Primes and Their Auras, in R's Arithmancy, 44. Violation number 2, line 2, page 13. We can therefore claim the following. You can claim what follows, but only if you take into account that for any collection of numbers, we have shown that the following are true as shown by E.O. Dan in Numerical Groupings as Determined by the Scaling Large Cardinality, published in the Journal of the National Academies of the Royal Society of Liechtenstein, 247, sub 5. Violation number 3, line 45, page 13. Now assume that this is true for n, and... In fact, you don't have to assume it is true, as the following is true for all integers, was determined by Q.W. Sullivan, W.P. Lee, and A.A. Paint. In the seminal paper, Numerous True Theorems About Integers, published as a supplement to the New York Mathematical Association's A Stupendously Huge Collection of Things About Integers That Are True. Violation number 4, line 22, page 15. Since even integers can be written as... You can write all even integers as such, but only by using this shows that all even integers can be written as, as elucidated so clearly in Y.E. Graner and C.X. Zahn's The Impact of Repeated Enhancement on Non-Transcendental Numbers from the Mathematical Consequences of Procedurals, 97. Violation number 5, line 37, page 17. With this, I have proven the Goldbach conjecture. In fact, you will find that in many previous court decisions, the person who writes down a theorem is given priority in patent fights, and therefore you cannot claim priority on the Goldbach conjecture, as Goldbach's claim is more than two centuries before yours. As CVSI owns the collected work of Goldbach, they thereby own the conjecture. We, of course, would have no issue helping you and CVSI reach an agreement over licensing the patents you infringed and such an action would allow you to publish your paper without the specter of future legal issues. In fact, CVSI has even indicated that they would be willing to give you a share of the residuals that will, without doubt, be derived from the Goldbach Conjecture licensing, in respect to the quality of work that you displayed in your paper. 
If you decide to go forward with the publication of this paper without licensing, though, we will immediately file a lawsuit that we will win, and you will not see a cent. We hope that you make the right decision and that you and CVSI can reach a mutually beneficial agreement that will allow you to continue contributing such important work to mathematics. Reginald Leach, Esquire. Okay, where's Arnold? We need to terminator this. There's no way, no way that I'm letting that future become real. Really. <sighs> but since, since we're not there yet, and, and we can be so happy that we're not, I guess that we're just going to have to move on to the next story. In the hospital room with her are her beloved brother, Shlomo Chernesky, her estranged husband, Viktor Karnakovich, and her son, who is narrator for most of this novel, Alexander Sasha Karnakovich. And in this scene, the uncle has just entered the room. He's driven like a bat out of hell from a liquor distributor convention in Detroit to Madison, Wisconsin, and he has a liquor uh, distributorship in Madison. My uncle gave his sister a hug that rattled the bed and kissed her softly on her cheeks and lips. You really want to die today, he asked. I don't have a choice. I've already lost a lot of blood. They could give you more. Blood, they have lots of that. Blood is cheap. My uncle put a bottle of vodka on the nightstand. A nurse walked in to protest as he opened it. My uncle looked completely different than my mother, with dark Mediterranean skin and a perpetual five o'clock shadow. His curly, thick black hair, graying in streaks, was combed straight back. When he looked at the nurse, he did so with the exact same expression that my mother had used, intentionally or not, to scare thousands of undergraduates over the years. The nurse scurried down the hall. Ruchala, we should take off your jewelry, my uncle said. Otherwise, the Ganuvim at the funeral home will steal it. He's right, my father said. Of course he's right. Shlomo knows these things. She smiled faintly. It's getting hard to talk. Don't talk then, Shlomo said. Just listen. I'll have plenty of time to talk and, or listen when the worms crawl into my grave. A little vodka would help, she said. My uncle took the bottle to her lips and she had a sip. Then he lifted the bottle high and poured a shot down his throat. That's better, he said. This is hard, you know. I can't believe it. He passed me the bottle. I drank with my uncle, which was nothing new. Even my father, Victor, drank, although he refused to drink from the bottle straight and got a cup from a drawer in the room. Victor, that's a urine sample cup, my uncle said. So, my father said, this is good vodka. It isn't piss. I'm not pouring good vodka into a piss cup. All of a sudden, you have principles? All of a sudden, you don't have any class? 
It's a cup. I need a cup. The bottle already has your spit on it. Enough, you two, I said, and looked at my mother. It's like old times. She smiled and coughed. I took the bottle from my uncle and poured vodka to the top of my father's urine cup. I'm going to spill good vodka, he said. It won't be the first time, I said. He drank it down in one gulp. A smile flashed from his thin lips. It is good, my father said. I told you it was. My sister is dying. I'm not going to bring cheap stuff. Three minutes later, my father asked for more. I want to make a toast, he said. My mother's monitor beeped as he raised his cup. To my Rachela, who gave me love, gave me a son, and had the strength to cheat death. The vodka is making you sentimental, my mother said. Yes, it is. I didn't want to be here, you know, a dying woman, a hospital, a depressing thing. But I'm glad I came. Tomorrow it will be chaos. All of those mathematicians, tonight it's just us. That was an excerpt from the mathematician Shiva, as read by the author. My name's Stuart Rice Dodger. I am a trained geophysicist. I've been writing fiction for over 30 years, and The Mathematician Shiva is my first published novel. The Mathematician Shiva tells the story of Rakella, the greatest mathematician of her age. We spend time with her as a child in a Soviet gulag near the Arctic Circle, and with her family as they deal with the aftermath of her death. I talked to the author, Stuart Roystacher, about how he prepared to write about mathematicians and the importance of balancing each and every identity that one has. Plus, don't worry, I got your back. I slipped in a little bit about Navier Stokes to make sure that we got some good, real, solid math. And if you want to hear another excerpt from the novel, please stick around after the interview. Your wish will get granted. And just between me and you, this is a little spoiler. The next bit, it's a bit more mathy. Before we get to that, though, please enjoy my conversation with the author, Stuart Roystasher. We're going to talk about the mathematician Shiva today. And if, if I read this correctly, the idea for the book came from you being berated by an Eastern European mathematician about not teaching your three-year-old daughter algebra? Correct. I had a mathematician over for dinner, all dinner long. He kept staring at my three-year-old daughter, which I thought was strange and creepy. And after dinner, he came up to me and said, So, what mathematics have you been teaching a little girl? And I said, She's three. She knows how to count to 50. I was very proud. And he was more than dismissive. He was angry. And he said, this girl is prodigy. You should be teaching her algebra right now. So from that came the seed of the idea for the mathematician Shiva. As you said, you're a geophysicist. Uh, I mean, not a mathematician, but I'm sure that Being a geophysicist, you do know a decent amount of mathematics, but what kind of research did you have to do uh, in order to write a book about a mathematician and about the 
as as if once you read the book, it's it's very clear about a very important character of the book is the Navier-Stokes equations. Right. What I did in terms of research, or quote unquote research, was a mixture of real life of experience and reading. I took advanced math classes as a graduate student and hung out with math and computer science graduate students, many of whom went on to work at Bell Labs. And from that experience in graduate school, got more than a little bit of an inkling as to what the life of mathematicians was about. And I made an assumption that academic life is academic life, regardless of discipline, and assumed that their behavior, the behavior of the people, strange but oddly sincere oftentimes, would apply to mathematicians. And then there was reading I certainly did uh, about Kolmogorov, who plays a central role in this novel, about the lives of certain mathematicians, particularly Soviet, and reading about them in the library, and then uh, knowing what I know about the Navier-Stokes equations from my own experience as a researcher and as a student. Uh, I guess to to say a little bit uh, about the book, this is uh, a story about a family, uh, and uh, it starts with a death in the family of uh, Raquel, uh, who is probably, it in the world of the novel, the greatest mathematician of her age. And as I just mentioned, it she also is a is a female, which tends to be a not overly represented in the world of mathematics uh, quite often. So I, I was wondering if you'd go into a bit about why you decided to to make the great mathematician a, a female, which is, I believe, a, a good idea. But I was wondering if you could expand a bit on that. It partly goes back to that dinner that I was referring to, where the mathematician was berating me for not teaching my daughter algebra at three, and then eventually he wanted me to teach her calculus at six. So actually, he was giving me a good deal of time to get from algebra to calculus. He was being generous. But at the time, he was talking about my daughter. So that immediately made me think about what it would be like to be a female math prodigy as opposed to a male math prodigy. And I thought it would just be much more interesting from a narrative standpoint to have someone atypical for a mathematician, in this case a female who really is the greatest mind of her generation, as the principal character. I just thought uh, it would make for a richer novel, both in terms of ideas and emotions, and it would run counter to standard narratives and what you try to do you know, when you're telling any story telling any story is to surprise people right you want to keep them reading for the entire length of a book and you want to keep them coming back for more so you have to keep it interesting and unusual uh, one of the one of the themes that I, I felt while reading the book is that your characters uh, have to balance a lot of different identities they're they're balancing being immigrants or first or first generation in the United States. They're balancing being Polish and Jewish and mathematicians and family members or different types of academics and their identities as being United States citizens now. Why, why were these different identities uh, so important to you when you were writing the book? 
It's a central theme of the novel that we have to somehow make our way in the world as best we can with the tools that we possess. And that's true both in terms of career and in terms of those we love and in terms of how we get along in the day-to-day. So how we get along in the world, uh, despite our handicaps, and everyone possesses handicaps of some sort, limitations. None of us are perfect human beings. None of us are, are perfect geniuses. We all have liabilities, and we try to move on as best we can. And so when you're writing a novel, you do have to create some sort of conflict and that conflict is the the limitations of the individuals involved in this particular story one one of these kind of handicaps that you mentioned that a lot of the characters in the books seem to have is is the uh, you could say the handicap of almost being a a mathematician is do you feel from from your experience in the world that the type of people who are drawn to becoming a mathematicians do have something something about that drive that can uh, hold them back in other areas of their life? I believe that that's so from what I've observed. I believe that that's so from my personal experience. And, and I'm not talking about mathematics in particular, but having a geeky, nerdy approach to life where intellectual ideas reign triumphant, where you're thinking about ideas constantly, or as my wife would say, and we've been happily married for 36 years, you're down to one bar, all right, which means that I'm not socially engaging her or at a party with friends, is, is, is a definite limitation in trying to get along in the world. But from my experience, I couldn't live any other way, and it's uh, the pursuit of ideas that drives me as much as the pursuit of love right? that they're equal and and in many cases they're one and the same i i thought i thought it was very well developed in the book i mean especially watching this this family where almost all of them are academics there are there are a couple that are not and then watching the struggle of the uh, of the academics in the family dealing with this emotional and familial loss uh, versus how the the couple of non-academics deal with it and the kind of clashes that come out of it because of that different perspective. Right. So there are some non-academics in in this family, thank God, (laughs) and their idea of dealing with loss is much more direct. They have to deal with what is missing in their lives emotionally. Whereas the mathematicians and the son have to deal with the loss of intellectual ideas as well. If if someone you know is uh, an intellectual light and you lose them, you're not just mourning their loss as a friend, right? You're mourning the the interplay you have with them intellectually, and that can be a and is a, a devastating thing. I speak from personal experience when I say that. One of the uh, one of the things that comes up, uh, kind of again and again, uh, is that the reason that uh, Raquel was so good as as a mathematician was so driven was because she was quite literally starved as as a child. Uh, and do do you feel that there is uh, that 
that kind of drive that that you will find amongst people who are not only uh, academically and intellectually gifted, but do have this this harder beginning of life that that can drive them to achieve greater things than uh, say people who uh, grew up well off in in the United States as, as some of the characters in the novel uh, espouse. It is a theme in this novel that suffering leads early on leads to the possibility of success later on in life. That if you face barriers early on, profound barriers early on, uh, the barriers that other people see in adulthood, you don't see because they seem trivial, trivial to what you experienced in your childhood. Uh, that's a truism. I think it, it is indeed true. Uh, and that theme came about from watching videotapes of people who had survived World War II in work camps. And one of them in particular had lived in this work camp as a child that I describe in the novel, the same work camp that Rachela lived in. And he was very articulate. He's passed away, but he was particularly articulate in, in describing how he had changed as a child in this work camp, how he felt vehemently that without that work, without that experience in this gulag, he would have remained a spoiled a child and then a spoiled adult, unable to accomplish much in life. And that the hardship that he endured during World War II toughened him and made him into a better human being, someone who was able to see suffering in others and someone who was able to actually make something of his life in ways that he could not before. Uh, if if you had to choose uh, something for, for the readers to get out of this book, what would it be? It's a very optimistic book, which is unusual for novels. These people in this, in this novel, many of the people in this novel, have endured hardship after hardship, but because they are resourceful and bright and adaptable, they're able to succeed in life, by and large, with some exceptions. And they're able to accomplish things intellectually and uh, emotionally successfully that most people aren't. So what I would like to be able to have people to get from this novel, which is a full novel uh, with a lot of ideas, ultimately is, 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 is the idea that you can succeed in life, that there are difficulties and that there is much darkness in the world, but ultimately it is possible, maybe not likely, but it is possible to use your full faculties in a disciplined way to accomplish and create a well-rounded life around you. So that would be what I hope people get out of this novel, ultimately. Okay, well, thank you so much for talking to me. You're welcome, Samuel. It's been a pleasure. And now, just as I promised before, here is the second excerpt from The Mathematician Shiva, as read by its author, Stuart Roystasher. Could I ask you to do uh, maybe one more shorter one? Uh, and since, since this is a, a, a math-based uh, podcast as well, maybe something that mentions a little bit more math? Sure. Hold on for a second. Okay. Here we go. 
For example, consider this equation, a formula that guides me in virtually everything I study. And on the page, you'll find the Navier-Stokes equations. Yes, okay, reader, I know you are probably sweating almost in instantly at the sight of such a thing. You are thinking, perhaps, why does this author show us such opaque symbolism? Forget this book by this middle-aged man raised by eccentric mathematicians, as if there were any other kind. One of his parents is already dead in this story, and she was probably the most interesting character of the lot. Why am I making your life difficult? Because while maybe math is shit to you, it isn't to me, and it wasn't to my mother or father. It is like breathing to us, and to ignore math in this story would be akin to listening to Frank Zappa without ever having taken hallucinogens, an incomplete experience. Dear reader, don't panic. Newton was barely past 20 when he invented calculus. It's pure adolescent whimsy at work. Think of the language of mathematics as shorthand that has been around for centuries, the equivalent of teenage texting, but for geeks. Yes, I know you don't know half the text abbreviations that your teenage children use, but you can figure out their argot if pressed. Can you not? You can figure out this one as well. Thank you very much. I, I will admit to having that one highlighted and was going to be one that I uh, would read if you were not going to uh, give me some readings. Okay, fantastic. And before we say goodbye, here is one more poem. Hi, I'm Joanne Growney, and the poem I'm sharing with you was inspired at a math conference in San Antonio, Texas, where it was announced that the billionth decimal digit of pi is nine. This poem is found in my collection, Red Has No Reason, and is entitled, A Taste of Mathematics. A mathematician left the convention focused on nine, the digit that sits in the billionth decimal place of pi, ratio of circumference to width, of the yellow circle that parted the clouds as she strolled down Commerce Street to the Rio Rio Cafe for lunch and a beer. On fire with jalapenos, she went shopping for a souvenir. She bought earrings, red, red plastic peppers with green stems. She said, hot peppers are like mathematics with strong flavor that takes over what they enter. Hello, this is Melanie from Boylan Heights, and that is all the time we have for this episode of Relatively Prime. I would like to thank Gizem Karali, Ted Chang, Jess Charlton, Kitty Staholsky, Stuart Roystosher, and Joanne Growney for appearing on the show. If you would like to know more about them, please go to relprime.com and check out the show notes for this episode. I also want to thank Chris Zabriskie for the music that you heard. You can also find links to more music from Chris on relprime.com. Relatively Prime is a production of Acme Science and Samuel Hansen with support from all of his wonderful backers on Kickstarter, like me. 
If you would like to help support Relatively Prime, head over to the website and click on the support button. And trust me, Samuel would be very happy if you did. You can also head over to iTunes and leave a rating and review. That's how their algorithm decides rankings. And the higher Rel Prime is ranked, the more people will see the show. If you have any feedback or you want to say hello to Samuel, you can send him an email at his personal email account. Really, this is his everyday email account, samuel at acmescience.com. Finally, while the interviews in this episode of Relatively Prime are licensed with a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike license, the authors reserve all rights for the poems and stories which appeared on this episode. And if you want to reproduce or otherwise use their work, please contact the authors to ask for their permission. Thank you for listening and have a math-horrific week, y'all.